Welcome to Women Igniting Change, the place to be for women leaders and decision makers who are passionate about changing the world and determined to act. I'm your host, Robin Jorgensen, former corporate executive, global speaker, and founder and CEO of Women Igniting Change. Let's dive in. Hello, changemakers. Welcome back to the Women Igniting Change podcast. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Cheryl Thompson. Cheryl is an amazing woman who had a 30-year career in the automotive industry, rose through the ranks to become a global leader with Ford, and then decided to leave and create her own company in order to help address the systemic disparities around diversity and inclusion that exist within the automotive industry. Her organization is called CADIA, which stands for the Center for Automotive Diversity, Inclusion, and Advancement. And together with her team, they are on a mission to double the number of diverse leaders in the automotive industry by 2030. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robin. So excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into this topic because it's not something that we discuss every day. So let's go back multiple decades. Take us into your journey into the automotive industry from your early early days in tool and die to becoming a global leader. What was it like to be a woman leader in that industry? Yes, yes. Well, I kind of ended up in the auto industry by accident. I had graduated early from high school and I was enrolled in community college. I wanted to do something with computers, but I ended up getting pregnant and my plans to go to college went to the side Mm -hmm. and I was waitressing. And my dad, who was an engineer at Ford Motor Company said, hey, Cheryl, if you're going to waitress, why not apply at Ford? Food service was still in-house at the time. So I applied. They hired me on the spot, like handed me an apron and said, can you start right now? And my first job was washing dishes in the basement of World Headquarters. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Remember the Lucille Ball episode with the candy coming down the conveyor? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I had these trays coming down the conveyor trying to, you know, get all the dishes washed. And I got to waitress in the executive dining room and the penthouse. And Robin, I learned so much about leadership from that experience by the oh, way wow. people treated me. Yeah, Some people yeah. you could tell were trying to climb the ladder and step over other people and did not treat me very nice as a service worker. And then others, and I got the opportunity to wait on Jesse Jackson, and he's included in this, would look me in the eye and see me as a person and ask me my name, right? So that was so incredible. And then they were trying to recruit women and minorities into the skilled trades. And I thought electrician, pipe fitter, I know what that is, but they wanted me to go into tool and die. And I had no idea what that was. I thought it was going to be making tools and dyeing them. And so for those who may also... (laughs) Be be thinking, what is that? You know, a tool and die maker makes those dies that go into those large 25 ton presses that stamp out car parts like fenders and hoods and roofs. And that was just such an incredible experience. This is in the late 80s. And as you can imagine, I was one of the very, very few women among hundreds of men in the tool and die unit. But it was such a great foundation for engineering. And I had a superintendent come alongside me and I consider him a sponsor, not even a mentor, but a sponsor, because he said, you know, Cheryl, a lot of dye makers have gone into engineering. Have you thought about that? Now, me, you know, getting pregnant at a young age, I'm still kind of stuck in this shame spiral I was Mm -hmm. in and didn't think I could ever be anything, let alone an engineer. 
And right. so he introduced me to that idea that I could be an engineer. He introduced me to his network, right? So he used that political capital that he had to help pull me forward. So that's how I got into engineering. And then eventually I got promoted into a leadership role. And when I got to that table, I sat around and thought, wow, I thought y'all had it all figured out. (laughs) (laughs) And that was my big uh aha that I had been underestimated, that I had been underestimating myself. And I, that's really when I just started to have more awareness about how things work and you know, um, how some people are just overlooked and they just have so much more to contribute. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that was my, my journey. Wow. What have been some of the most significant changes and advancements that you've witnessed in terms of DNI within the automotive industry? Well, in the early 2000s, I was part of the diversity council. I was actually the co-chair. And naively, I remember thinking, oh, we're diverse. We don't need this diversity council anymore. So many companies have been on this journey for a while. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you look at their progress, and it doesn't kind of reflect. So it's been a lot of like, you know, uh, one of my colleagues calls it food, flags, and fun. There's been a lot of this activity stuff. And I'm starting to see it shift into more. outcome centered activities like out uh impact are are we going to be able to make an impact with this activity mm-hmm. and so i I've, I've seen that shift and then if you remember 2007 through 9 we had all, you know all kinds of layoffs things, right? right and we let go all kinds of engineers and then in 2011 when we went to hire again they were gone they had left the state. I'm in Michigan, you know, auto industry. They right. had left the the field because it was too cyclical. So we had wow. to look for in new places to hire. So what you know, we we went to colleges we didn't typically recruit from. We looked at veterans and we looked at women. And I'm ha- so pleased to say that a third of the people we hired were women. And that's when I started noticing the the power of bringing women together up until then i had been so isolated self protection mm-hmm. and just doing things like forming a little lean in circle i remember the first day sitting around the table where you all share a time you chose to lean in or lean out there were things i didn't know about these women that i had worked with for decades and there was such emotion in the room it's like wow i didn't know that Right. We all bring so much more to the table, but it had been hidden <laughs> because we were all in that self-protection isolation mode. Right. So I that's for me when I really started to see the change was 2011 and there's just been so much more focus and it just continues to grow. It's it's never it's work that's never going to be done or attrition rates are still higher than the majority worker, mm-hmm. but I am starting to see some some change. Yeah. So, I mean, you could have stayed within the industry and continue to affect change from the inside. So what motivated you to launch Kadia and address it from the outside going back in? Yes, yes. So I, as I mentioned, fell into the auto industry. And I always had this image, vision in my mind of doing something that I really wanted to do when I was able to retire or cash in my chips. Uh So that's kind of where it all started. And I was thinking kind of small, I'm going to coach other women. Uh, You know, I'm going to 
teach courses or whatever. And you don't know this, but I ran into you and you at, at one of our, you know, events of a mm-hmm. mutual community we belong to. And you told me about the leadership program that you went through at CTI. Yep. And I went through that leadership program and you told me how it changed your life. And that is really what inspired me to start Cadia. Oh, I don't wow. know if you knew that. I did not. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, because as you know, we declare our quest. Yep. And when I climbed that purpose pole and jumped off the purpose pole, my <laughs> quest was I want to change the power, the face of power and influence in automotive. Little did I know it would, you know, really come to fruition. That that's where that idea started. I just got chills when you said that. I and now I'm picturing myself back at the top of that pole, which, as you know, was utterly terrifying to jump off into nothingness. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I I love that. Um, and now here you are. How many years into Cadia? Uh, gosh, we just had our sixth annual Rev Up 2030 event Amazing. in May. Yeah, That's six incredible. seven years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So through Cadia, you offer a, a wide range of services consulting, DEI assessments. Can you give us some specific examples or initiatives that you've undertaken to promote DEI within the automotive industry? Yeah. So as you know, we have um, annual events. Rev Up 2030 is our big one. Um, so that's every year. And we're just bringing community together to teach best practices and lessons learned and promote it. Mm-hmm. We started something called the Impact Awards three years ago to recognize people for doing great work and organizations. We have an assessment that we do when a member signs up so we can let them know where they are and what are the right next steps to take to to get to that next level. And then we have a 12-week accelerator program where we certify people in DE&I. But the one I'm most excited about is our driving diversity um, report. So I have been trying to get data for the last three years to really take a deep dive into representation within the industry. As you know, the the Bureau of Labor Statistics just talks about overall what does the representation look like. I wanted to know job function because I know there are certain job functions that prepare you or position you for advancement, and there's some that can sideline you. So I wanted to know what does mm-hmm. that look like? And then what does it look like from a leadership level? Mm-hmm. Normally, leadership pipelines look like that pyramid where right. there's great diversity at the bottom, but the more you rise up, the, there's less and less diversity. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know what's our foundation because our mission is to double the number of diverse leaders by 2030. Where am I starting from? Right. So we got funding from the state of Michigan because Michigan is really focused on high tech talent for the auto industry. That's kind of I know the auto industry is many other places, but Detroit is kind of you know uh-huh. the home. Right. And um, so we got funding there and we got 20 companies to participate in a survey where they shared their demographic data with us, which is unheard of. Wow. Right. <laughs> and then data or anonymous data? That was anonymous data. And then we got public data from 20 additional companies across automotive and defense. And we're just kind of getting ready now to do our initial findings um, on um, uh, coming up on uh, in a couple of weeks. And then we're going to be deep diving into many of the insights, but I can share just a a little few sneak peek things. (laughs) So 
um, when I look at transportation overall, there's 24% um, makeup of women in transportation. 47% um, is what the makeup is overall in the overall workforce. Mm -hmm. So women are um, underrepresented in transportation, which I'm thinking of automotive and defense companies when I think about who answered the study. When I look at leadership, first level and then moving up to senior and executive roles, that representation, I'm happy to say, is very much on par with overall representation. So it's like 22, 23%. Fantastic. That it's not been the case in the past. So I can tell what we're doing is working. Yeah. Many companies start off focusing on women because gender is, you know, it's when we, many companies are global. That's the one thing everyone can agree upon. Gender, we need mm -hmm. to see increased um, representation in, for gender. Now, we also looked at um, racial and ethnic minorities. That representation for leadership is not where we need it to be. It's it. only like 6%. So Ooh. we know that there's work to do there. Yeah. And then, you know, other little things like we saw the number of degrees in STEM really increasing. So back in 2002, for people um, of color, it was like 38%. Now it's up over 51%, similar for, for women. So we're really being able to have that data to say, wow, where are the opportunities? Um, where are we already doing well? Where can we build on our on our strengths here? So, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things that we're looking at with that high percentage of STEM degrees for um, ethnic and racial minorities is, are some of those degrees um, foreign nationals where maybe we need to start looking at public policy like immigration? Right. Right. So, so that's just a little sneak peek into what we're starting to dig into now with, with having that data. Yeah, I love that. And you know, it's so important because you and I both share a passion around getting women up into those senior roles. Yeah. And we also want to make sure that just getting women in, like that's step one. We want to make sure that they're diverse women, that it's not all you and I sitting there as yes. as well. Um, and making sure that they are getting into the mix as well. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I saw that you do, which really fascinated me, is the CEO Coalition for Change, which sounds like a really amazing initiative. So can you explain how this peer group of CEOs is working together to drive DEI in talent development? And what are some notable successes as part of that coalition? Yes. So we started this coalition at the end of 2020. And if you remember back then... <laughs> Time to start something new. <laughs> right. We're in the middle of the pandemic. Right. But really what inspired us to start this was the, the murder of George Floyd. Right. So we had been having discussions within our own community, the Cadia Connects community, um, a lot of really raw discussions about race and privilege and all of that. And we felt like we had the voice of the employee. So we had a series of roundtables with CEOs that we knew and that Mish Auto knew. Mish Auto is a, an economic development organization focused on talent and automotive. And we had uh, probably 10 to 12 CEOs who raised their hand and said, this is important. I want to be involved in advancing the industry and diversity, equity, and inclusion and impacting social justice. So we had discussions and discussions and discussions of what would the work of this coalition be? Some people were really focused on social justice. 
Others were really just focused on the DEI, diversity, Mm -hmm. equity, and inclusion piece. But we really brought the two together. And it was a conversation I had with one of the CEOs, a black female CEO. And I'll, I'll share, she was a little skeptical of joining this because she didn't know us. And she thought, who's this organization? Are they trying to be opportunistic in the moment? Right. Check a box. Yes. And we we had just a really beautiful conversation about social justice and what can CEOs within their own companies do. There are many organizations who are looking at the inequities in banking and lending and housing and all that stuff. But as a CEO, what could she do? So she started looking at, I can affect hiring practices. Mm -hmm. I can hire I can uh, uh, impact attitudes of my the people that work for me that hire and give other people opportunities. Yep. And then she put together this mind map that was just incredible. And, it, you know, at the end of the day, her being able to hire people who are diverse is going to help create economic stability and sustainability um, and in their community and um, build uh, generational wealth. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was just beautiful. So every CEO, you know, we had this model that we put together, which had six different areas and we had this menu of options. And we said, we want you to pick two things to work on and come back and tell us how you're doing. Typical CEOs, they came back and overachieved. And many of them came in with full DEI plans, like their strategy. And they so generously shared it with others which is helping the industry go further, faster. So some of the notable successes are people actually having budget, uh, a budget for DE&I so that it's not all volunteer. That is allowing them to hire chief diversity officers in some cases, um, bringing the supporting structure into play. And then creating that space, you know, you need the time and space and room to have some of these conversations, right? right? So those are some of the notable successes. Um, They're very much involved in the the driving diversity study that I talked about. Mm -hmm. We shared a little sneak peek with them yesterday and they asked such good questions and, and are really going to help us probably create a few key work streams that are really going to take those easy to say suggestions, but hard to implement things forward. Right. right? So, yeah, that, I love that so much because there's so many CEOs, especially after the murder of George Floyd, some organizations stepped into that and said, here, Patagonia is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, P&G is another organizations that take a stand for here's who we are. This is what we believe and stand for. And then there were so many organizations that were afraid to step forward and say, here's what we believe and take a stand around social justice. So I love that you're working with organizations that have the courage to step out and do the right thing and say, this is what we believe. That's amazing. Um, Because inside organizations, the DEI work that we see through the women's leadership training that we do, um, what we notice is those, the, the DEI initiatives and programs are fantastic. And taking those and tying those to compensation, that's where the rubber meets the road. When you can take those programs and actually tie them to comp plans, that's when mm-hmm. they really start to see change. So I love that this coalition exists and yeah. it sounds like they're doing some incredible things. Yes. Yes. They're a great group. How has that coalition fostered a sense of community among themselves 
and grown together as a collective? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't record any of the calls and we don't allow delegates. Sure. So what it's really allowed is a sense of it's a safe place. So we've had some really interesting discussions because as you said, this takes courage, (laughs) a lot of courage. And the political environment right now is really, really tough on this particular topic, Mm DE&I. And it has just given them a place to come and ask questions, talk about some of the challenges, but also come in and share some wins, what's working, what's not working. Some of the really tough problems like return to work um, and hybrid work and what's our policy. We have mm-hmm. one CEO that put to, you know, had her team, her, the people that work for her create the crowdsource, this policy on work from anywhere that was shared with the other companies. Wow. So yeah, it, it's um, like the generosity, the safe space, the relationships, you know, them being able to pick up the phone and call one another and say, hey, I'm having this tough issue. How did you overcome this? Or even, you know, other uh, issues that aren't even related to DE&I, like the chip Mm -hmm. shortages that we were experiencing that really impacted the auto industry, just to talk about some of these these tough things. The Roe v. Wade, right? We had a whole discussion around that. Um, So just a a place to come among their peers and, and talk about some of the harder to discuss issues. So what are some of those tough challenges that still exist around DE&I within the industry? And how are some of the organizations you work with addressing those? Yeah, well, what I find is the challenges are pretty common. We, in our roundtables, we have a monthly roundtable where we have people share wins or bring in challenges or concerns. We also hear these challenges come up in our accelerator program. Mm -hmm. And the common challenges are, number one, you know, we're working from the U.S., and many of our companies are global. So what does DEI look like on a global scale? It doesn't mean the same thing in France or Germany or mm-hmm. India or Mexico. So that is a, um, a a challenge. And I would say companies are coming together to share their approach, which is you need to really regionalize and localize your approach. Don't just try to take your cookie cutter solution and apply it everywhere. Really get the voices of people, you know, where they are. The other one is how do you get middle managers to care? Because Mm -hmm. middle managers is where the rubber meets the road. And they have like, oh my goodness, being a leader today is so, so, so difficult. Right. There's so many challenges going on. And in our industry specifically, I'm thinking about automotive. We had the ship shortage and then there was COVID. And then we just came through a big UAW strike, Mm -hmm. which could have put a lot of suppliers out of business. So how do you really get these middle managers to care? Right. So that is a common challenge. We've part of our accelerator program, we have capstone teams that we put together and we give them real world problems to solve. So they're taking on some of these real world problems. And one of the teams took on engaging middle managers and they did a survey of 200 middle managers and then put together these observable behaviors. Nice. Exactly. So that's, that's another one. And then the one that I'm seeing come up um, again and again is burnout. Yeah. Um, many of these roles are volunteer. People mm-hmm. feel strongly, they feel passionate about advancing 
um, equity within the industry and being more inclusive. And we all have, they all have full-time jobs. Um, so an employee resource group leader or somebody who's volunteering on the diversity council, mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of burnout. And then the other thing associated with employee resource groups is how do you get them into the plants, the manufacturing floor? Because that it's more difficult for those employees to participate. So what we're starting to see people do is involve the plant managers. Like we we want to do this. How can we make it work? Because a lot of times they don't want to let them off the line. Yep. Right. But they were helping them realize this is an investment in your people. You know, mm-hmm. giving them time to participate in something like this is going to help your productivity through communication and being more effective and, and efficient and less quality mistakes. And that psychological safety to raise their hand and, and call out when something isn't okay. Yeah. So those are a few of the key issues. Nice. So let's envision it's, you know, December of 2030, right? That goal has been achieved. You and I are sitting down, we're having a nice glass of wine, great dinner, what what happened over the past, you know, six to seven years? And what are you celebrating in 2030 that Katie achieved? Yes. Well, I would be celebrating um, hitting that goal of doubling the number of diverse leaders. We, we talked about females making some progress there. I'd like to see even more progress in terms of representation overall and have that carry through to the very senior levels of C-suite. I'd like to see the same for ethnic and racial minorities, representation increase there. And I'd like to see companies have cultures that are a lot more psychologically safe so people can actually self-identify. Like right now, when we went through all that data collection, it was difficult (laughs) when we're looking at race and ethnicity because people don't self-report in those categories even because- Because they are a minority, they're afraid their response is going to come back to them. Mm-hmm. And it, it, they, there's that lack of trust there. Right. So if we're having that just with race and ethnicity, think about people with disabilities or a veteran or someone in the LGBTQ community. Right. So in 2030, there is no hesitancy, no fear of self-reporting so that we can really be assessing that data and and monitoring progress, you know, every couple of years. So yeah, our glass of wine would be, look, we're looking at this, this (laughs) latest study reports and we're seeing this progress not only be sustained, but continuing to move in the right direction. Love it. That's a great vision. I'm going to hold that for you as well. It's great. Thank you. (laughs) As a sought after speaker in the automotive manufacturing defense industries, what are some key messages or insights that you convey during your presentations and your workshops? Well, it depends on where the audience is starting from. Mm -hmm. And many of these audiences, this is new for them. There's a lot of very conservative leaders in this space that have kind of, I don't want to say they've done it um, maliciously. Um, You know, they've kind of stayed away from the whole DEI topic. But there's a lot of like fear. There's a lot of um, misconceptions about what this is. Mm -hmm. But what we're really starting to see is a lot of companies see the demographics changing. They're seeing this next generation come into the workplace and, and boy, oh boy, they're not putting up with the stuff you and I tolerated. They totally are not. Oh my gosh. And they're wanting to know how do we attract 
and retain talent. And they're starting to realize if we don't be more inclusive with our recruiting, we're going to be missing out on 61% of the workforse. Right. Yep. Um, so we, we spend time talking about the business case. And my approach is to meet someone where they are and when, whichever way I can find a way in. With a lot of men, it's their daughters. Mm-hmm. With, yes. Yeah. With people in production, it is about, you know, you think about a manufacturing environment where you've got all of your equipment and your goal is to make sure your equipment has the most uptime and it's, it's efficient as possible. Mm-hmm. People are our number one assets. Why aren't we doing the same thing with people? Right. How do we make sure that they are engaged? How we do we, you know, how can we convince them to give us more of that discretionary effort that we all want? Right. Um, so it, talking about the business case in many cases, if a com- if a company is already advanced, you know, then maybe I'm moving into more of the systemic change. What are the systemic mm-hmm. changes that you need to make in your talent systems and the way we source, recruit? the way we hire, interview, the way we assess performance, you know, looking at performance evaluations and the unconscious bias that comes into right. that. And, you know, there's the people side of it, and that's one thing, but then there's the sy- systemic side of it as right. well. So really talking about the systems that need to change. And then it's sometimes I'm talking about how do we sustain these gains and, mm-hmm. and keep this work going because it's a journey. You know, sometimes I'll hear comments from people we work with saying, oh yeah, my leader said, DEI, are we still doing that thing? We hit our goal. I thought we were done. It's like, no, (laughs) no, this is an ongoing journey and we have to, we have to keep going. So many things, but basically it's, you know, teaching them what diversity, equity, and inclusion is. Diversity is so much more than the things we can see. There's so many invisible dimensions like neurodiversity is a huge topic we've been discussing. Um, but then it's like what gets in the way of inclusion, helping right. them understand things about unconscious bias and covering and code switching and all of that. And right. what can we do to invite people in and be more inclusive and all without that blame and shame that has, has been done in the past. Right. Right. We want to call people in and invite them in. Yeah. So leaders that are doing this work, how do you help them drive accountability for their DEI initiatives? What does that look like? Well, it, again, it depends on where they are. So mm-hmm. sometimes it could mean tying results to compensation. Yeah. I don't recommend that unless a company is already advanced and has resources right. in place and good processes and systems and all of that. Mm-hmm. Where many companies are starting for that accountability, you know, because they are just starting, it's looking at their strategic pillars that they have within DEI yep. and looking at what can be done from an individual contributor level what can be done from a people leader level and what can be done from an executive level and giving people almost that menu of options to pick from and just saying, why why you to pick two things that um, are, you know, within your area of influence Mm -hmm. or that you're passionate about, how can you affect change? So that has been something that's been pretty effective for leaders to keep people engaged. It's giving them that goal. And then, you know, continuing to increase it year after year as we gain more competence in this area and ultimately working working on tying it to compensation but right. you know that there's a ways to go for some companies yeah can you give us an example of some of those companies that are doing this really well and some lessons that other automotive organizations can learn from what they're doing 
Yeah, I don't want to call out any company names specifically, but you know, yeah, but there are several OEMs that are really doing this well. And it's because they have invested in it. They have a team, they have structure in there. So I would say structure is the number one thing, having a chief diversity officer who has support. It's not just a team of one. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, you know, because someone has to drive the bus, making it everyone's job. Everyone has a piece in DEI. So, you know, one company I'm thinking of specifically, their approach to this whole thing is DEI is every single person's job and just being yeah. very transparent about it. Um, other companies are really leveraging their employee resource groups. And I love this. Uh, one company has put together a, a marketplace for stretch assignments where they're solving business problems with members of the particular employee resource groups. And that gives those members visibility, uh, practice in presenting yeah. in front of executives, and then it's solving real world problems. Um, and then I would say, you know, the third thing is companies who are really going through their systems, mm-hmm. not just talent, but every single thing and making sure that we don't have any unintended bias in there. And I'll just give you one example of a supplier who makes something called a visual visor. And the engineering team that was working on this said, boy, how are we going to make sure this works on people of color? And they weren't sure really how to ask the question. So they went to the legal team and said, this is what we're working on and the concern that we have. And the legal team said, you need to go talk to the chief diversity person. Mm -hmm. And that chief diversity officer was able to say, well, you can frame it in this way. You can say, we want to make sure it works on all skin tones. And Mm -hmm. have you thought about people with glasses, people that had cataracts or LASIK surgery, people who sit tall in a vehicle, people who sit short in a vehicle? So really just thinking beyond even talent systems and every single thing we do and looking at it through that DEI lens, kind of operationalizing it like you had mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So let's dive into ways to measure and track the impact of DEI initiatives. Where are you seeing the progress there? Because putting the initiatives into place and operationalizing them, that's amazing. But how are they being tracked and measured to actually show and prove the impact? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, the gold standard to measuring is me- looking at your demographics. Mm-hmm. You know, are where are we? So having that foundation, that baseline, and then being able to track progress. Um, so I, I would say that would be the key thing and really not just looking at the outputs of how many women do we have in these positions and these roles, but what's contributing to that and really focusing on measuring that, you know, do we have a mentoring program? Are people engaged in the mentoring program? Are we seeing results? Is it effective? So measuring some of those inputs rather than just looking at the outputs. Beautiful. Where are you seeing any challenges around sustained commitment to this? Because as you and I know, and you mentioned this, this is not, you know, one year done, we're finished with this. This is a continuous thing. And what we see inside organizations a lot is they're going down path A for three, four months. Oh, you know what? That really didn't work what sideways. Let's go over here and do this. Let's go over here and do this. And this has to be a really intentionally sustained momentum initiative. So how do you see organizations sustaining that commitment, especially during the tenuous economic cycles that we're in right now. 
Yes, yes, that's definitely a tricky one. Yeah. I would I would say automotive has been really adverse uh, um risk adverse, right? They don't like to make changes. When mm-hmm. I was in production and there was a quality issue, the first question would always be what changed? They don't like to make change. What I have seen is companies who have decided to take this on have done so with really careful consideration mm. and they know that they can't back out right? Um, because it is um, going to be more harmful than if they would have done nothing. Yep. Most companies I would say are there. Um, there's still many, many challenges in terms of resources and budget and making sure all the work doesn't fall on volunteers. But for the most case, I'm seeing slow, steady progress, which is good. It's three steps forward. It's two steps back. It's three steps forward, but it's still moving forward. Yeah. Where I see companies fail is where if it's only grassroots, if it's only bottom up, I and see companies, mm-hmm, they stall yeah. out after two years. Right. If it's only top down, sometimes there's some resentment and um, that that doesn't work either. So it has to be top down and bottom up, kind of like the sandwich approach. Yeah. <laughs> that can be very effective. So for the most part, you know, people that have taken this on are keeping it going, sometimes slower than we would like to see, but it's still going. I've seen very few just totally back out of their commitment. It's the minority, but it does happen. Got it. Well, it's nice to hear that most of them are moving forward, even if it's at a slow pace, there's still progress being made. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where can our listeners learn more about Kadia and get involved? Yes. So Kadia.org, C-A-D-I-A.org. Lots of lots of stuff on our website. Also on LinkedIn, our business page is is up, uh, Kadia. Um, But yeah, that's where listeners can find out more and they can reach out to me personally. It's Cheryl, C-H-E-R-Y-L at Kadia.org. And I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Cheryl, thank you so much. This was an incredible conversation. For our listeners, we will have Cheryl's bio in the show notes and links for Kadia, and we will see you back here next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Thanks, Robin. Thank you so much for listening to Women Igniting Change. I know creating change matters to you. If you enjoy what we talk about on the show, please take one action today and share it with someone who could benefit from listening. Until next time, keep standing up and speaking out for what matters.